Well, good morning and welcome to Mercy House. I'm Pastor Tommy. I'm really glad that you're going to be joining us this morning for Palm Sunday. Uh, in case you didn't know, this isn't what we normally do on a Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week. Um, so this is the time that we read about in the Bible, um, that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem just before he's about to be crucified. So leading up to next Friday um, is going to be Good Friday, and then Easter next Sunday. Uh, this week coming is, is the special, uh, special time for us as Christians as we remember the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, but based on the scene in Jerusalem and the reception of Jesus on Palm Sunday, you would never guess that he was about to be tortured and murdered a week later. So it's called Palm Sunday because what you would see back then is similar to what you would see now. The people of Jerusalem placed these palm leaves on the ground and they would wave them up in the air as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. You can read about this in John 12 in verses 12 through 13. Uh, this should be on your screens. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So they're using palm branches. It isn't random. They're using palm branches because palm leaves represent triumph and victory. And so they took them and, and they would lay them on the ground before Jesus as, as he walked over them. They would wave them up in the air all to give Jesus honor and glory. He was getting a hero's welcome and a parade through the city. Now, what's happening on that day over 2,000 years ago is actually incredibly significant. So, this is a parade, but it's not any parade. The only other times that you would see behavior like this would be when a king is returning home victorious after a really long war campaign. So, it's hard to capture how remarkable this moment was. What the people are doing with these palm branches is they're treating Jesus as not, not just like a spiritual leader or a wise guru. They are uh, claiming him to be a, a, a political and a military leader, which has consequences. You have to remember that Jerusalem was under the he very heavy-handed rule of Rome, one of the most expansive, powerful empires that this world has ever seen. And they didn't get that way by being soft about insurrection. And so what's happening on Palm Sunday would be considered treasonous under Roman rule, and it would have been punishable by death. And so the actions of the people in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they, they were cosmically appropriate because of who Jesus is as the God of the universe, but their understanding of what it would mean for Jesus to actually become their king is really far off from what Jesus would have to actually do. Now, our text this morning is actually not explicitly John 12, since we're still continuing on in the book of Romans. And I think some people would naturally take a break from their sermon series on Palm Sunday, but I do think that there's a beautiful opportunity here to do a two-for-one sermon to honor both Palm Sunday and not break the continuity of Romans. And this is how the two texts fit together. If you fast forward about 20 years from when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem and palms were placed on the ground and waved in the air, and Paul uh, is traveling on a missionary journey while he's planting churches in Macedonia um, and, and, and in Greece. And he arrives in Corinth, the city of Corinth, where many believe that Paul is at um, where he, when he's writing this letter to the Romans. Um, it, it's a church of Christians in the heart of the Roman Empire, which is what we're reading here today. Now, the reason why I think chapter 13 is appropriate for us to read and study specifically on Palm Sunday is because it deals with the same power and authority that is the backdrop of 
of, of the time of Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. At the beginning of Romans 12, um, if, if what we're reading there is looking at our relationship with God and what that should look like in light of the gospel, which is uh, we ought to respond in whole life worship of God, uh, and then the rest of chapter 12, which is what we covered last week, is looking at our relationship with one another based on the gospel. Romans 13, where we're at this morning, it shows us what our relationship should look like with those who have power and authority over us in light of the gospel. So with that, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump right in. Please pray with me. Father, you uh, are awesome. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And God, we pray for your help in understanding this. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would have for us this morning. God, we pray that you would help us see your vision for living under authority and let us do this out of reverence uh, and worship of you, God. We love you, Lord. Uh, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I encourage you to have your Bibles open if you don't already. There are Bibles underneath your chairs. We're going to be in Romans chapter 13, starting at the very beginning. Romans 13, verse 1. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So right away in verse 1, what we see is a command and a rationale. Uh, but everything that comes after this builds upon this one point that Paul is making. So we need to make sure that we understand what exactly he's saying. And what Paul is saying is let every person, so Paul's command here is specifically to everyone in the church at Rome without any exceptions, and he will place himself under this command as well. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. The, the Greek word for what you see here as subject means to be subordinate to, to submit oneself to, to render obedience to. So let every person who calls themselves a Christian submit themselves, render obedience to the governing authorities that are over them. The most natural reading of this implies our relationship with our civil government. Government. So in other words, our local and our federal governments and authorities who are responsible for enforcing law and order among all of us. But Paul is going to expand this to really any type of authority that we find ourselves under. So all of us are under different kinds of authority all the time. So whether we're a citizen of the United States of America and we're under the authority of the federal government, whether we're permanent residents of Massachusetts or even the town of Amherst here, or we're just here visiting, in this moment as we sit here, we are under the authority of the local town authorities and subject to the laws and the regulations of this state and this town. But we're not just under civil authority. Like students are under the authority of their teachers um, and professors and, and school administrators. If you play a sport, have you ever been on a sports field, you are under the authority of the referees and, and even the league administrators. If you have a driver's license, you're under the authority of the traffic laws as you uh, pull out onto this street. Even if you have a library card, so if you have a library card, you're under the authority of the library, at least in the realm of the library and the books that you take out there. So we're, we're not like strangers to authority in our lives. And Paul's exhortation is that we as Christians ought to willingly submit and render our obedience to the authorities in our lives. 
that this should be our default posture. So our, our default posture toward authority in our life should not be one of rebellion. It should not be one of disobedience, not one of, okay, I'm going to be obedient when it's convenient, but rather of intentional and willful submission to the authorities in our lives. Now, for some of us, that's a given. This is normal. That's natural. For others of us, this might not be as comfortable to hear. It might even be harder for you to receive. But that's the command that we see here in God's Word. And what about the rationale? I think that's important. Why should we, as Christians, default to this? Well, look again at verse 1. And let's pay special attention to the second sentence. So, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for, that means kind of because, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The, the first and primary reason why we as Christians ought to submit under the authorities over us is because God himself has appointed every form of authority that there is. That's what Paul means when he says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, there's a few things to gather from this um, as we kind of form a biblical theology and understanding of authority in the world. The first is that all authority is created by God, and the second is that all authority is ordained by God. It's created by God, and it's ordained by God. There would be no authority if it weren't for the authority of God and the authority that he has as the creator and sustainer of the universe and everything in it. And all authorities do exist, that do exist, point back to God. So authority was not an invention of man. That No one came up with authority as an original idea. When we see authority and, and government, theologically, they are a reflection of God's supreme authority over all of his creation. So what this means is that contrary to what some of us might believe, authority in and of itself is not bad. We'll see the benefits of governing authorities later on in this passage, but sometimes as humans, we're prone to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. But that's not what we're seeing here. There are absolutely many examples of authority being misused, uh, abused, but authority as a, a construct, as a framework, it is not inherently evil. And yes, there are times when it is, it is not only permissible to disobey authorities, but as a Christian, it's an obligation to do so. So there's more on that in a little bit. But in order to be tracking with where Paul is heading, we need to be able to see that despite bad examples of authority, authority itself is good because it's of God. Authority is not just created by God, it's ordained by him, meaning he establishes it and he maintains it. So when Paul is in Greece with Silas and he's preaching the gospel, um, he's addressing a crowd at the Areopagus, and he says to them, this is in Acts 17, verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, so you pause right there, you've got this picture of God's authority. He's Lord and ruler of heaven and earth. It's another way of saying that God has the ultimate authority over everything. So being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. 
So God is not a God who sets the parameters of this world and he kind of winds up the clock and he sits back just to watch his little human simulator play out over time. That's not what we see when we read the Bible. God is sovereign in his authority, meaning he is in intimate control over every and all aspects of his creation. Paul points out here that it's every, every, nation, every nation that ever was, that is, and ever will be is made and sustained by God. So think about that for a minute. I think we can think about God creating individuals, but do we think about God creating organizations or entire nations, or, or empires of thousands, millions, billions of people. Like, surely that's not too much for God. It might be hard for us to conceptualize, but that's what God does. Paul says that every nation on the face of the earth has its reign, its rule, and its boundaries determined by God. There's not a single detail that escapes him. That is next-level sovereign authority for us to understand. So never mind reading Tolkien and hearing about the races and kingdoms of the elves and the men and the dwarves and the hobbits and the ants and the orcs and the trolls, which is like really impressive. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying, I'm not trying to like disrespect uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. But God hasn't just penned a few details about fictitious peoples and their preferences. He has orchestrated the trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions of variables to sovereignly coordinate and assign all nations with all their inhabitants and all their international uh, relationships since time began down to the, the millimeter of every single border over all the earth. And all of this has been orchestrated to serve his sovereign will. This ranges from the most powerful world leaders the Julius Caesars and, and, the, the, and, and just the, the powerful world leaders all the way down to like the captain of the first grade t-ball team. Every piece of authority, every reign and rule has been determined by God. Now, why is this important? Because it's only when we're able to understand God's role in relation to the authorities that are in our lives that we're able to understand why we ought to obey them. And we ought to obey and submit to our authorities because God himself has established these authorities over us. There's no such thing as, as chance if you're a Christian who believes the word of God. There's no coincidences. God is in full control, has ordained and appointed the authorities that we have in our lives. And if that's the case, then we as Christians ought to obey because in our obedience, God is honored and glorified. When we obey our authorities, we honor God who himself established these authorities. This actually should be our primary reasoning for our obedience under the law. So, like, why do you drive the speed limit? It's a good question to ask yourself. I think most people would say, I don't want to get a speeding ticket. I think that's fair. Other people might say, I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't think that's a bad answer either. But those aren't the reasons that Paul is getting at. I don't think that those, are the, those would be the primary reasons that someone who knows how God is involved in the traffic laws ought to respond. We ought to not speed out of obedience to the law, which is an ultimate obedience to God. Now, if this is our understanding of our governing authorities and laws, if obeying our authorities is a way that we can obey God, then we as Christians should be exemplary citizens. We should. 
We should do everything that we can to submit to our authorities and to follow the laws as an extension of Romans 12, verse 1. Looking at how to worship God, that by the mercies of God, we have to submit our whole lives as a living sacrifice to God. And a way that we do that is by submitting under the God-ordained authorities that are in our lives. So are there biblical examples of this playing out, or is Paul just trying to establish his authority as an apostle? I think that's a fair question. And there are biblical examples. One of the earliest examples of this in the New Testament is actually the story of Jesus' birth. So you may have missed this as you're reading through the birth narrative. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, this should be on your screens, it says this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So do you see it there? Caesar Augustus made a law saying that everyone had to travel to their hometowns to be registered. The purpose of this was so that the conquering emperor would be able to collect taxes from the new people under his authority. But despite this being incredibly inconvenient and costly and not to mention dangerous for a pregnant mother, Joseph and Mary subject themselves to the governing authority and they made the long trek back to Jerusalem. And here's the takeaway. Their godly obedience not only was glorifying to God, but it was actually used to fulfill the prophecy from Micah 5.2, which said that Jesus would be born where? In Bethlehem, Joseph's hometown. We as Christians should submit ourselves to the authorities in our lives as a way to honor God's ultimate authority in our lives. But what happens when we don't? Well, let's read on in Romans 13, starting in verse 2. Therefore... Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who, re who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul here begins by exposing our hearts in our disobedience. And he does this by pointing out once again the connection between the authorities in our lives and God's supreme authority. And by default, they are not mutually exclusive. He says in verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. My sister Mindy is in town, and I'm really glad that she's here. Um, and, and as I was preparing for the sermon, I couldn't help but think of the summer days when mom would go to work and she would leave Mindy in charge. And she'd leave us some cash for lunch, and we'd ride our bikes into town, we'd get subs from Royal Pizza, and we'd pick up a movie from the rental store, remember those? And from what I can remember, everything always went off without a hitch. But here's my point. Uh, my mother put Mindy in charge of me. 
Mindy's authority was an extension of my mother's. If I were to reject Mindy's authority, it wouldn't just be a rejection of Mindy during the day. Like, I would have to answer to my mother at the end of the day. That's what Paul is getting at here. When we resist or reject the authorities that are in our lives, we need to remember that we're, we're not just resisting and rejecting our teachers or our parents or our bosses or our employers or, or the RMV, but we are, in a sense, resisting and rejecting God, who has supreme authority and has established those kind of micro-authorities in our lives. And they are not disconnected. One of the ways that God sovereignly rules and reigns in our lives is through the practical authorities that he's placed us under. They are not perfect, and we're going to get to that, but broadly speaking, the authorities in our lives exist for our good. Look at what Paul says, verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So there's a very practical appeal here. And, and it's, it also helps us see the, the blessings of good authority in our lives. Paul says that rulers and authorities in our lives, they aren't a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So their sovereign purpose is for human flourishing to one degree or another. Broadly speaking, authority is a good thing. Anarchy and the removal of all power structures or all power dynamics is not how God has structured our world. And Paul goes so far as to say in verse 4 that the authorities that, that we are under uh, in our lives exist as God's servant. Like literally, it says, for our good. So again, whether knowingly or unknowingly, the authorities that are in our lives, they've been placed there, they've been ordained and established by God for our good. So the very practical appeal is obeying governing authorities because they largely exist for our good. Yes, they can be inconvenient. Yes, we might not be able to understand all of the ways and reasons for why they lead. Like, why do taxes have to be so cumbersome? Why are there signs that say no right on red? Like, those are some things that frustrate me sometimes. Why are airport security lines so long? But our default posture as Christians should be obedience in faith that God has established these authorities in our lives as an extension of his authority for our good. But there aren't just like theological ramifications and consequences at stake. Look at what Paul says in the second part of verse 4. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So not only are authorities in our lives existing as God's servant for our good, that's what you see at the beginning of verse 4, but they're also God's servant for his justice. And ultimately, even that justice is for our good. We see the justice in the power that different authorities in our lives carry. So teachers and professors have the power to fail us from a course if we're doing poorly. Parents have the authority and the power to discipline us. Referees have the power to give a yellow card or to put someone in a penalty box. Even the librarian has the power to freeze your library card and say, no, you cannot take out any more books until you've returned or paid for the ones you've already taken. 
I think one thing this reveals is that God cares about all kinds of justice, like the, the major justices in the world, but also the minor areas for justice to be done. When used in good ways, these powers can be wielded to facilitate order and justice, which are required for human flourishing. But it's power nonetheless, and they don't bear that quote-unquote sword or that power in vain. So in other words, the swords that they carry are not just decorative. So authority without power is no authority at all. So there should be a healthy fear, a healthy fear, which contributes to our godly obedience when we consider that the authorities over us are just all bark and no bite. That is not the authorities that are over us. But what happens when you put power in the hands of sinners is that there's often misuse and abuse of power. So to stop here and say, obey because God says so, with, uh, and then just we leave here and we have rose-colored glasses thinking that every authority in our lives is perfect, a perfect servant of God dispensing justice and goodness exactly how God would do it, that would be incredibly unhelpful and incredibly naive. Which is why I think this is a good spot for us to kind of sit down in the text and consider what it looks like for us to practically live this out. So first, it's important to note that Paul's views on authority, they're not exclusive to himself. The apostle Peter weighs in fairly explicitly. You see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So again, same messaging as Paul. The connection between the human institutions and authorities um, to that of God is maintained here. We are to subject ourselves, render obedience to these authorities for the Lord's sake. So not, not just to be kind and courteous merely out of respect for those in positions of authority, but, but most essentially for the sake of God and his ultimate authority over us. But it was also Peter, I'm going to muddy the waters for us, it was also Peter who said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Let me say that again. Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. So how do we make sense of these? At first glance, I think it seems like it would be a flip-flop from that original position, maybe some inconsistency in the messaging of the apostles on submission to authorities. But I think when we take a minute to look closely, we see that there seems to be a biblical case for godly disobedience of authorities. So the question for us is, in which situations and in what manner do we disobey? When we look at that verse, we get our first clue. To give a little bit of background, Peter and the other apostles are being confronted by the Sanhedrin, which is several do uh, dozen prominent Jewish elders, and they would exercise authority and power and rule on all matters of religious practice in the nation of Israel. It was kind of like a church court, if you could imagine such a thing. And it was kind of, uh, it, it, it had the authority um, under the authority of Roman rule. And this is the same Sanhedrin that Jesus would appear in his trial, which ended with him being sentenced to death. So more on that later on this week. But now what, what they're telling Peter and the apostles um, is actually they're not even telling, they are ordering them. They are commanding Peter and the apostles with their power and authority that they have over Peter um, and the rest of his group is to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus. 
That's what they're being ordered to do. And Peter's response is, we must obey God rather than men. Now, these words give us a pretty clear understanding of when we ought to disobey. Look at the contrast that Peter reveals. We must obey God rather than men. If the word of the authorities in our lives are ever in opposition to the word of God, the word of God has greater authority. Remember, this is how we've come to understand all authority, not as independent from God, but as commissioned by him. And if any authority in our lives is calling us to do something that we should not or not do something that we should based on what God is telling us in his word, then we not only should disobey the earthly authority, we as Christians must disobey. And Peter and the apostles were told to do something in opposition to what God was calling them to do, namely to go and to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. And Peter felt that conflict, but he was compelled. It was clear as day to him. It wasn't muddy for him. That's why he said, uh, we must obey God rather than men. These early Christians were so adamant about obeying God's ultimate authority that they were willing to suffer death for their disobedience to their local authorities. This is the theologically correct ordering of authority being shown in, in their lives. Acts 5, verse 40, this is just a few verses later, says, and when they had called in the apostles, this is the Sanhedrin, they beat them and charged them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So that is some good ordering of authority and some godly civil disobedience. This isn't something that's new to the New Testament either. Uh, we actually see godly civil disobedience all over the Bible. One of the earliest examples of this is in Exodus chapter 1. If you remember, the people of Israel uh, are living in Egypt, and, and they're growing in great number. The Egyptian pharaoh is starting to get nervous that they might rise up and overthrow him. And one of the things that he commands is he, he tells the Hebrew midwives, hey, I want you to kill all of the boys when they're born, as soon as they come out of the womb. If it's a boy, kill them. So you have to remember, Pharaoh isn't just like a governor. He's not like a CEO. He has the authority of a little g God in the eyes of the Egyptians. So this command that he gives is immutable. He, he carries real power with grave consequences for disobedience of this command. Do you remember what these Hebrew midwives do? Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And I love this, verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. When the authority of man is in opposition to the authority of God, we ultimately submit to the authority of God. That's what these incredibly brave Hebrew midwives did. Pharaoh was a god on earth whom they certainly feared. He definitely did not bear the sword in vain, but there was one who they feared and respected even more than Pharaoh. And in their obedience to God and not to Pharaoh, they saved 
countless lives. It led to the flourishing of, the, of their nation, and, and they did it like with a little spice too, which is cool. Remember uh, the story of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? So King Nebuchadnezzar makes a little golden figurine, and he makes a decree to all the people in his kingdom that when they hear music, they're to fall down and worship this little golden statue. And of course, we know that the Word of God says to not do that, to not worship any other god or to make any idols. That's Commandments 1 and 2. And so this is pretty straightforward for the boys. Uh, in their hearts, I'm sure they were saying what the midwives and what Peter would, would say later on, like, we must obey God rather than man. And so they don't bow down and worship this little golden figurine. Nebuchadnezzar hears this. He, he goes into a fit of rage. He brings them in. He flexes all the authority that he has as king. He threatens that, that they're going to be thrown into the burning furnace if they don't just bow and worship this little gold figurine. And do you remember what they said? Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up, period. Godly civil disobedience. And they pay for it by being thrown into the fiery furnace. Of course, you know the story of Daniel himself, who later on uh, was told, wasn't told to do something that he shouldn't, but he was actually told not to do something that he must do, which is that he couldn't pray. And so what does he do? He prays. And he prays uh, for, and he pays for this disobedience by being thrown into a lion's den to be mauled and killed. That doesn't actually happen, but that was the intention. So what can you learn? What can we learn from all of these examples? Well, look back to Romans chapter 13, verse 2. Paul says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. When you resist, you will incur judgment. I think this is where it's important for us to see that those who resist will incur judgment. And I think that this judgment is twofold. There's both a worldly judgment and there's also a judgment from God himself. So Peter, the midwives, Daniel's friends, Daniel himself, they were all ready to face the earthly judgment and the consequences for their disobedience. They were all prepared to pay with their lives. But more importantly, they were aware and, pre and prepared to be judged by God himself. And they knew with full confidence that they would be vindicated, that they would be able to stand before God and they would be held accountable for their disobedience. But then they'd be able to say to God, God, I had to obey you rather than men. And do you know what? God delivered all of them. God dealt well with the midwives. That's what you see when you read Exodus. He rescued the boys from the fiery furnace. He rescued Daniel from the lion. He rescued Peter and the other apostles. God says to all of them in their civil disobedience, in their ultimate allegiance to the ultimate authority of God, he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. They did the right thing. So what does this mean for you and for me? It means that there might be instances in our lives as we follow Jesus where what God says in the Bible is going to conflict with how others in positions of authority over us are leading us. And in these moments, they will be a test of our ultimate allegiance of who we view has the ultimate authority in our lives. 
And if that is the case for us, if we are convicted in our hearts that we are being forced to do something or prevented from doing something that God in His Word is telling us to do or not do, then we are to respectfully disobey. And notice that in none of these examples is there any motion to start a movement, okay? They aren't trying to gain mainstream attention. We only know about these instances of civil disobedience because God recorded them in Scripture. There's no selfish ambition. They weren't trying to send a message. This was not a political position for them. They simply were convicted in their hearts, and they did what they had to do in order to maintain a clean conscience before God. I'm not saying that advocacy is wrong or that raising awareness of brokenness and corruption shouldn't happen, but that's just not what the text is talking about here. This is talking about us as individuals in our personal lives and our personal relationship with the authorities that are over us. So if there are authorities in your lives that are calling you to live in ways that conflict with the Word of God, you not only should disobey, you must, Christian, disobey. This is in all areas of authority in our lives, with our boss or our employer, with our teacher or our professor, wives with husbands, children with their parents, church members with their elders, us all uh, under the United States federal government. Like There is no authority on heaven on earth that is greater than God. So we must always be ultimately obedient to God. We can't get too carried away with this train of thought, though. Like, we have to remember that the main message of Paul's words in Romans 13 is not civil disobedience. It's of civil obedience. So Romans 13, 1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's what he says. And know that we have our qualms and our issues with authorities today. But if we think that it's hard for us to submit today, we need to remember that Paul is writing to the church in the heart of the Roman Empire. They are about to be fed to lions. They're about to be stuck on sticks and set on fire to be human torches. But before that happens, Paul is exhorting them that they are to glorify God by submitting to the authority of Roman rule over them. No authority is perfect or sinless in the world. What one could argue that every governing authority is by nature corrupt because of sin. But even so, we have to understand that there's something much greater at play than just maintaining earthly law and order when we submit to our authorities. R.C. Sproul says this. I think this is helpful. He says, is Jesus honored by our submission even to corrupt authorities? This should be a slide up on the screen. The universe is not structured as a democracy. It is a theocracy. The government of the universe is God. And he appointed, he has appointed, his only begotten son as the king of kings and the lord of lords. The father has given to the son all authority on heaven and earth. At the end of his life, the president of the United States will have to answer, or, I'm sorry, stand before Jesus Christ and be held accountable for how he held his office. The Senate, the House of Representatives, and all such authorities will be answerable to the King of Kings as to how they executed justice in their labors. The King of England and the Chairman of China will be held accountable to the King of Kings. We often overlook the fact that the heart of the biblical message is a political message. We live in a kingdom where the supreme political authority is vested in Jesus Christ. This is how we ought to understand the authorities in our lives. 
They are not perfect. They are not without sin, but so long as they are asking us to do things that do not conflict with what God is saying in his word, then we as Christians ought to obey out of reverence for the ultimate authority of Christ and knowing that these authorities will all eventually have to answer to God for their authority and how, and how that played out. So how, how do we do this practically? Let's read these last verses and we'll finish for the day. Verse 6 in Romans 13 says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love one another, and for the one who loves another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So who here loves paying their taxes? Exact a one hand. Probably because you're getting a refund, I'll be honest, you know? <laughs> Most people don't like paying their taxes. Uh, but one of the most practical ways to submit to our civil government that Paul is laying out for us here is to pay our taxes, to pay what is due and to pay it on time. And tax deadline is coming up, so like get your taxes in. So the question is why? Well, I think Paul encourages us to look at taxes not as like an inconvenient bill that's due, but actually as a payment for services. The, the language that Paul uses here in verse 6 says, for the authorities are ministers of God. It's actually the same language he uses when advocating for the payment of pastors and people who are serving paid ministry. So we should be paying our taxes, not with stingy, bitter hearts, like, you know, shaking fists at Uncle Sam, but looking at, at what Paul says, to actually pay all that is owed, uh, which is not just what our tax bracket says, but also in, in respect and honor for the work that's being done. That there are other people on the other side of the tax check who are servants of the Lord, his ministers who are serving us for our good. It's a very different way of looking at tax season. And sometimes we're seeking God about big and major life decisions and asking God, God, what should I do with my life? I'll follow you anywhere. And I think a part of Romans 13 is challenging us to first be obedient to the basic, small, straightforward areas of worshiping God and following him. So before we offer to uproot our lives and to follow God at any cost under his ultimate authority, I think we are challenged to practice this mindset by submitting to all of the micro-authorities in our lives with respect and honor. Because if we can't do that, I don't know if we really have business tackling the big one quite yet. There's no one who did this more humbly than Jesus himself. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. One week before Jesus said these words, he was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they were heralding him as the king of Israel, and they were absolutely right in doing that. But it was not going to look the way that they wanted it to look. They were expecting Jesus to overthrow the government. They wanted him to perform the ultimate act of civil disobedience, civil insurrection. But instead, Jesus submits himself under the authorities. 
So the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who is high above any and all authorities on earth, he rendered obedience to the earthly authorities, which ultimately led him to his death on the cross. Now, why did he do that? It is out of ultimate submission to the Father. He wasn't operating under his own preferences or his own plans or his own ideas. Jesus says in the garden, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This would be a great time for some civil disobedience, I think, if I were in his shoes. But what's happening is actually not outside of God's purpose and plan. And as excruciating as it was, Jesus submitted to the Father and gave up his life in order to give us forgiveness for our sins and provide for us new life in him. If you're a Christian, this is the God that we serve, a God who is willing to humble himself under his creation, to submit to mocking and ridicule and shame and torture and ultimately death, all so that you, his beloved, would be able to have a relationship with you. He knew the cost when he was riding into Jerusalem. And as the palm branches were waving, and as people were so happy and excited, he knew how that week would end. Yet, there was nothing that could set him off course from accomplishing what he was sent to do. So we are called, in light of the gospel, to submit under our authorities because Jesus himself did. And if it wasn't beneath him, it certainly is not beneath us to do. This reminds us that our hope is not in our bosses, our hope is not in our professors or our local leaders or our politicians. Our hope is in Christ, who is the ultimate authority. So let us live in subjection under the authorities in our lives as a way to respect and honor God and to glorify God, who is over and above all of heaven and all of earth. Let's pray. Father, you are above all. You are the king of the cosmos. You uphold the world by just the power of your word. All things are held together by you. There's nothing that exists that can exist apart from you. God, we confess that many times we struggle, not just under the authorities in our lives, but under your ultimate authority, God. God, thank you that as we read the Bible, we see that your authority is good, that your reign and rule is for our good. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand and see the connection between the authorities that are in our lives and your ultimate authority, God. Lord, I pray that you would embolden those who are in situations where the authority in their lives is calling them to live uh, in ways contrary to your word. And I pray that you would give them the boldness and confidence to, to disobey God respectfully, out of their ultimate allegiance and obedience to you, God. But for the rest of us, Lord, and in most of the areas of our lives, God, help us to be humble. Let us submit ourselves to the authorities, not just out of reverence for them, God, but, but out of ultimate reverence to you, Lord. Let us, as Christians at Mercy House, be exemplary citizens, Lord. And people look at us and say, wow, why are you doing that? It's not because... God, we want to be just exemplary citizens, God, but because we want to please you, God. We want to be good and faithful servants to you, ultimately, Lord. 
God, show us how to do that. Show us how to do that in the minor, small things, Lord. Expose in us areas where we are not defaulting to a position of submission, God. Lord, help us, empower us to do this. We thank you that you ultimately showed us how to do this, God. And so, Lord, I pray that this would be a place that you mature us and grow us as a church, Lord. We thank you for your uh, ultimate authority in our lives, Lord. And we thank you that you love us, that you have died for us, that you have ultimately submitted um, as an example for us to follow. Lord, help us to do that in a faithful way. God, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.